Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. I gotta ask you, if every time Snap Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? Miss Snap Boogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? God, this America, man. This land is your land.
So you are listening to Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group, and you are here with... John. And Dave. And John, you're on Twitter, aren't you? I think so. Yeah, last I checked, at John Pacini. And I'm at with Sober Senses. I don't think anyone's ever tweeted us, but, you know, knock yourself out. You can do it if you want to. First time. And John, what are we going to talk about today? Mm, What are we going to talk about today? Well, we've been wanting to talk about Trump again. For a yep. very long time. We did a Trump podcast maybe, well, like the week before the election, I think. Yeah, it was about that. It was about a week what's before. happened since then. Well, yeah. And I, I guess as well, we kind of had a chat too about like, is it going to be about Trump or is it about going to be about 2016? And particularly, yeah. like, I don't know about you, but if you're seeing, and I guess like with our other show, it wasn't really about Trump. It was more about like the debates that are going around in this, particularly in Australia, about mm. how people are talking about Trump and the kind of political debate that that goes on. Because I don't think I'm really in a position to give like an accurate diagnosis of like the Trump no. government or administration. Why would you want to? We're so far away here. We, we you know, we're not paid to bloody <laughs> look into this stuff either. Okay? What this like, isn't a, this isn't a professional show. No, no, that's not. But what we can do is we can talk from the experience of Australia, yeah, where definitely. Trump's been received in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. And I guess as well, you know, something we've talked about before is how, I guess, Trump is seen as the pinnacle of mm. a kind of reactionary authoritarian populism, some people are saying fascism, that's yep. uh, represented by the Brexit vote. Yep. Um, I guess the return of one nation in Australia. Um, yep. Some people would also say the possible rising popularity of thing, groups like the National Front. Maybe even that would include in that the Italian referendum. Like Trump's mm-hmm. meant to be the kind of pinnacle of this global movement. And so what we're yep. seeing is a lot of like, oh my God, 2016, the worst year ever. Mm. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag WF 2016. Yep, yep, that should probably be the title of the show. Is is 2016 the worst year ever? Hmm, well, I mean, I saw something yesterday, which was apparently an ad for a bloody, some computer game of some sort, where you had to enter, like, a brief, like, 100 words of, like, would you rather live in 2016 or 1916? I would definitely rather live in 2016. No, exactly. It's like 1916, you're going to die in the Somme, or you're going to die of Spanish flu in a few years' time because of the Somme. And so I, the major World War One battle for those not aware. And this is what's really totally interesting, right? Is like the the rise of this kind of reactionary or authoritarian popular, whatever you want to call it, right? Of Trump is experienced yeah. by a large amount of both like the establishment, but also kind of like friends and comrades and the general population as like a shock, like a deep emotional and subjective yeah. shock. Yeah. And, like, what, when the Trump election happened, and we should probably mm. talk about as well, like, as fucking always, we were totally wrong about who was going to win the election. Yeah, but then so is everyone. This has not been a good year for predicting things. But it's like, it's like every time there's a vote or an election, mm. we, when we do a show, mm. we're like, okay, what's going to happen? Well, the mainstream voices say this. They're probably going to be right. And yep. we're total fucking idiots because they're they're always wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're they're they are paid to know this stuff, and they're not they're not doing a very good job. Well, I think know? I think that's that's like one of the lessons of 2016, right? Is that the kind of yeah. the commentary, like the the mm-hmm. media, political establishment, however you want to describe it, has yeah. no fucking clue. Yeah, yeah, and this is something that like Aaron Vistani and that Navarro has been. Hitting hard on is just, you know, the importance of kind of, we can talk about this more, I guess, of like the left needs an independent media voice now more than ever, given just how terrible the mainstream media has been at both predicting and also then dealing with the reality of Trump. Mm. Because because now things have kind of spiraled into this weird kind of like I was listening to um, Behind the News with Doug Henwood and had a really mm. interesting show about like how things have spiraled into this like crazy kind of Russophobia. 
yeah, like yeah, this kind yeah. of cold war, but without the fear of communism, kind of mm. hyper conspiracy. Um, yep. A regular friend of the show described mm. it uh, in Facebook um, today as it's like it's like info wars for like liberal crybabies. Yeah. You know, like it's 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 like the equivalent of like birtherism, but like mm. exploding out of the liberal establishment and people like Paul Krugman having like complete fucking meltdowns. Yeah. Right? Like these whole oh, elements right. of the liberal establishment just not being able to get what's going on. No. And there's something I guess about just where their headspace has always been, I guess, which is about, you know, the perpetual increase of things like globalization and of interconnectedness and how this benefits everyone and there's ideologies that they hold to that, you know, to an extent they know are not true, but they're just, you know, now that it's shocked, it's shocking. Well, cause, Cause I guess that's the thing, right? <laughs> like, like, you know, leaving aside Trump or Brexit as like positive mm-hmm. programs. And I don't think they're programs that actually offer anything positive to the vast majority of people, either in the UK or in the U S right. Like, but they, both of them do stand outside what has been the dominant consensus in the last 30 years. And it's the Mm. people at the top of the establishment who I guess are the last to actually realise that that consensus now is completely hollow and has at least been, been failing to function since the financial crisis. Yes. Yes. So I guess, you know, in a way you're, you're, you're talking about the finality of the, of the financial crisis kind of finally hitting home now, I guess, in a way. Yeah. It's, people, like, it's like, you know, they've talked about, there's been the 28 recession, 2008 recession, then things got to be better then there's another one, you know, but in reality, of course, there's just been, for most people, they've experienced this is just a period of crappiness. And I guess like, you know, after the, the GFC happened, people started using the metaphor of the zombie. You know, I guess that you could think about it like the Trump election, what it taught the top of the political class was they're the zombies, like they're the walking dead. Like, did, did you watch the, like, the election results come in? Oh, here and there, yeah. Well, because no. it was my birthday and I was down in, like, I was down in Wollongong. I had, it was really interesting because, like, I was travelling at the time and I was down in Wollongong and in Sydney with, like, really close friends and comrades. So I kind of had this whole series of, like, super interesting conversations with people as the result was happening. But it was like, um, like, because the night before, you know, I had very much the similar conversations that we had on the podcast, which was, you know, yep. like, he's not going to win. He can't win. Mm. Hillary's bad, Trump's worse, but Hillary's also worse, but he can't win, right? Like that was just, we were all still in that understanding. And my friend and comrade Antoinette, who's really involved in the Free University of Western Sydney, like the next day, like Mm. what Antoinette said was this just showed to us Mm. like actually how much us ourselves are caught up in accepting the liberal worldview, yeah. Right. Like that. That yeah. we accepted that this was the normality. This was the horizon of of contestation, and mm. I think we're kind of like emotionally invested in it. Like, like mm-hmm. why are so many friends and comrades in this kind of emotional shock about the end of liberal he- hegemony? Except that they were like effectively invested in it. Yeah. So, like that was kind. Of, sorry, go. No, no. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking about, I guess, this whole concept of the the what is. Dead is, is, is gone, but what's new is yet to be born. Oh, is that the Gramsci quote? That yeah, the every- Gramsci. That's been going around a lot. And, then, you know, I mean, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot in that, I guess, because we've had this kind of investment in the liberal consensus, you know, a negative investment because, you know, we, we didn't, the left don't see this as something positive. There's a lot of different takes on it, obviously. But, you know, now that it seems to have fallen apart, but it hasn't fallen apart on our terms. Things yeah. never fall apart on the revolutionary left's terms. But but that's interesting, right? Because, you know, you're saying that we have a negative critique of it. I think actually what um, yep. what the Trump victory showed was how much of left, lack of a better term, caveats as always, yeah. actually saw the kind of Clinton project or the EU project as somewhere yeah. on the same spectrum as their yep. emancipatory project, right? And yep. therefore, like, a defeat of Clinton as somehow. And, like, is mm. there... Like, is there a truth to that? Like, is the defeat of Clinton or is the defeat of the EU at Brexit, you know, is that in some ways like a loss for the left? Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess it would depend here on how you define the left. What yeah, is totally. The, you start getting into anti-politics and you can start thinking about, you know, that there's this 
political thing called the left, which is very divorced from, you know, what we might think of as capital of like lowercase p political understandings that are happening in the social realm where yeah. people are thinking about their lives and how do their lives relate to what's going on in the world around them and they're making understandings based on that. That's not what's happening with the left in the capital P politics in the EU or capital P politics of the people who are around the Clinton campaign is they weren't thinking in those ways. They weren't thinking about those bread and butter issues so much so, I don't think. Yeah, that's kind of really interesting, isn't it? Because like part of me, like I, like I use the term left all the time just because it's yeah. easy to communicate with, but part yeah. of me like really goes, it's just like not helpful because yeah. it frames the antagonism as one between the left and the right rather mm. than between, you know, the real movement that will abolish capital and capital or, you know, the proletariat and capital, like, or however you want to frame that, right? Like how you dissolve politics back into society if you want to kind of think about it in the anti-politics sense. Mm. Like, not, not, not yeah, think about reified politics and how... What yeah, because I guess part of the problem of seeing, like, the struggle to emancipate ourselves as part of the left and yeah. then understanding, like, the kind of third wave or post-social democratic forces or even old-style social democratic forces as part of the left, you then get plugged into it, right? Yeah. And so then when Trump wins, you experience that as a real defeat. Yeah. It, you know, mm. even though that the EU has been, like, the dominant force for, like, you know, smashing the, yeah. the, the you know, whatever was going to happen in, in Greece... Yeah, and okay. and the Democrats have been like the effective force of of neoliberalism, at, as yeah. as has the Labor Party in Australia. No, that's and that that's exactly right. I mean, there's something in here. I've been having a lot of thoughts about this recently, just about, I guess, the way that how does the way that neoliberalism functions as these kind of array of the way that the, this idea of neoliberalism is said to be that basically the state has withered away and then capital has become dominant. What's actually happened is that the state has withered away and a series of laws and legal institutions have become dominant. And the way that the left has invested in those in a way, like in the EU and in you know the IMF and other things as well. you know. So then what's actually falling apart is a lot of these deals are starting to fall apart like NAFTA's falling apart and whatnot and all these other things that were part of kind of the Democrats signed on to, you know? Mm-hmm. There's something in there, but I can't fully connect it yet. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I understand the difference between the law and the state, but I think I, I kind of get what you're trying to say. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's just that there's, that there's, you know, that the state, yeah, I mean, that the state would used to, you know, run the economy, but then what we're looking at now, I guess, is that there's a series of international laws and international agreements that are seen to be taking power mm. from the state, which is a progressive goal in a way, isn't it? You know, this is seen as the progressive thing. You know, we want to increase the power of the international community. We see internationalism as something that's positive. So on the one hand, you've got this kind of internationalism at the level of capital. What we need is an internationalism as a, as a form of solidarity. Mm. You're going to fight. What's happening? Yeah, it's this confused mix, isn't it, right? Like, because, like, both... Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, like, both Brexit and Trump, uh, you could certainly say that their their ideological character is nationalist. Yeah. Right? Like, and yeah. I, I think an emancipatory project is, is fundamentally internationalist. Like, I'm a globalist, right? right. Like, my critique yeah. of globalisation is that it it's not global enough, right? It's yeah. Not, it, uh, yeah, and I think that's what... That's that kind of argument that makes people kind of have this kind of critical support of the EU. Mm. And, Support of you know, and obviously, I don't think that we should retract from a politics of internationalism, like Zizek might be arguing, but who knows? You know, like I think that there's just a way to engage with this that's able to be both critical of those kind of big international capitalist projects. Yeah, I guess that does kind of like because I guess that's the other thing too is you know, like we we're kind of having these discussions and yeah. um, about the tr- like say the Trump election. Yeah, you know, like how much? Like, I guess some of the arguments I heard from friends and comrades that were really interesting is like, even if the difference between Trump and Clinton was only on a symbolic level, Mm. like that symbolic defeat still matters. Yeah, you know, like even if it's like the difference is between you know Clinton, who has the most kind of milk toast, milk milk toast. Is that the line? Is that you saying? 
it's well, it has the most weak version of liberal feminism. Yeah, like yeah. the fact that she did lose, and you know, is supremely mm. qualified, and these kind of things did kind of lose to a buffoon who would mobilise sexist language, does yeah. actually matter on the level of symbolism. And, you know, even though the content of Clinton's politics was never really going to do anything for queer people or do things yeah. for, like, people of colour or whatever, yeah, yeah. that there is, like, that, that, that there is a symbolic thing that does matter. I think that's pretty interesting. And when we're talking about Brexit, you know, I had friends in England that were like, well, actually, this will materially really impact on terms of people that, that are EU workers that are there that don't yeah. have, you know, they, their lives are going to be kind of fucked. But then, yep. of course, other people were like, well, there's a whole bunch of non-EU workers who are there who are already fucked. Yeah. Um, but the thing I wanted... There's a couple of things that we talked about before and I wanted to pull back um, mm. to. what You know, like the thing that was really interesting about watching the election result mm. originally were these people who, you know, these, these zombie commentators who had no idea, who suddenly became kind of completely ashen-faced and then had to try to explain what was going on. That was kind of mind-blowing. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, you got kind of that in the early Australian commentary, which was, I remember, like, I think it was Paul Kelly. Mm. Pretty much like apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, this is the end of, you know, that Australia relies heavily on America, and America is finished. So we're finished too. Was was kind of the line that was getting adopted by a lot of people. And I guess, you know, if you want to bring it down to the level of Australia, you know, and just how existentially connected the right and also the official left and Labour Party are connected to America. Yeah, totally. But also just just the kind of world, like, mm. I guess this is the other thing that I think is super interesting, that is the the kind of investment that people have in kind of like the social liberal policies Mm. project and their anti-Trumpism has really increased the kind of um, anti-democratic tendencies of the left. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like there was that article um, I shared with you yesterday of Jacobin, which was about the uh, 1930s and um, the response to that by liberals of sort of saying, we need to defend democracy by having unrepresentative structures who will do it. Yeah. <laughs> democracy. You know, that's how the NSA gets set up. That's how the CIA gets set up. These groups who, the the ideology, the thinking behind it is, you know, we can't rely on democracy to defend itself. And we We can't have unelected, unaccountable officials who will defend democracy for us. And we can't we can't rely on democracy because the demos is the problem. Like that yes. the ordinary everyday people are kind of, you know, selfish, yeah. emotionally vulnerable rubes who will fall for a, pub, a public, demo, like, a, yeah. like a, um, a demagogue of any yeah. stripe. Yeah. And therefore, we need to reduce democratic participation so, so the, the technicians and the experts can rule. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's like, right. You've got, on the one hand, I guess, this view that says that, yeah, that the people are just ridiculous or whatever, you know. The, and then the other view which just valorizes the people or the, the decision of the people as well, mm. which, which says, you know, oh, this is, this is the, it's almost like this kind of workerist position, I guess you could say, where everything that the proletariat does is right all of the time without mm. taking account of ideology and how ideology works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what were you going to say? Well, it would just remind me, like someone, a friend shared on social media this article that was like comparing the educational qualifications of Trump's administration Mm. versus the Obama one. And Mm. it was just kind of like, look how terrible it is. They don't all have degrees from Harvard and Yale and and things like that. (laughs) You know, and it was just like, it was so gross, right? Like on one hand, it was gross on the idea that, you know, the only people who should rule who should be in power are people who are qualified by elite institutions. But it was also gross in the sense that it suggested that these previous administrations or the general rule of people from elite universities has somehow been a fucking success. Yeah. You know, like the, the, all the administrations of capitalist states have proved completely incapable and incompetent to deal with capitalism's crisis on its own level, whether that's in capital accumulation or in kind of management of society or international relations or fucking anything, right? Yeah, yeah. And look, you've spent a considerable amount of time at, edu- at institutions of higher education, have, have, have I, and mm. I think the one thing that I've learned is that they're full of fucking idiots. Yeah, totally, yeah. No, you... you <laughs> 
you are not wrong on that, on, but, on that point. But it's just kind of like, you know, and it's interesting as well because you can think one of the things that, like, Trump mobilised mm. was the kind of resentment of people that don't have university degrees yeah. being told that they're useless and shit, mm. you know, for, for a long period of time. And also there was a guest on Doug Henwood's Behind the News who was talking about this. Mm. You know, like the part of what Trump, you know, apparently connected to was was the, you know, these areas where people are constantly told, well, oh, you know, if you want to improve your life, you should get a college degree, like as yep. if we don't need all the other people. And like also this kind of horrible idea that people without formal education are somehow without value, right? Yes. You know, and it's, it's then to come out with these snotty, elitist, technocratic, anti-democratic understandings. Yeah, and then to see kind of so many people who have some kind of commitment to mandatory politics lap this up as yep. if it's right, you know, inhale this anti-democratic bile. That's right, and there was a really good article, dare I say, in the Monthly, which is generally a journal which one might consider to be more on the line of the technocratic left, which yeah. was by by Chris Sosiokos, who's a very yeah. very good writer, um, and he made some. Some really my favourite novelist. Mm? He's my favourite novelist, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I think he, well, yeah, like, I think I've read everything that he's written, which is well, rare for me. Yeah. And novels, I'm not a novel person. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's it was very interesting, you know, and just, you know, making these points that it's easy to forget coming up in the left. We all met working class, often white men, who taught you about solidarity. Mm. You, who taught, you know, said, you know, yeah, we need to struggle alongside Indigenous peoples alongside women, alongside queer people, because that's part, that's what the real movement of Ob- to abolish capital is now. Fellas, mm. you know, things change over time. And it's often these self educated workers, you know, like they had no formal education often, you know, Communist Party autodidacts. I'm thinking in particular here, you know. Yeah, well, the first people who made, as far as I understand it, the first people who made a SART film in Australia mm. were, was the art group of the Waterside Workers. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, yep. Yep. you know, that I just hate this. And also as well, you know, like I think 95% of stuff that's taught at universities is ideological nonsense. Yeah, well, more but, so when you get into international relations. Oh, and my like, God. It's just it's just bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but I think the thing that's interesting about Solkus as well is like I've never met him and I've never spoken to him, but like the impression I get from his books is like his part of his political background is kind of in that Stalinist Greek Communist Party tradition. Yeah. Which partic- which particularly the book Dead Europe makes a lot of reference to. Yeah. And whatever you want to say about the failings of Stalinism, like mm. at least it kind of valorized forms of work mm. and the worker. Yeah, you know, and power of self-education, I think, as well, which is mm. of that. And that was something that, you know, despite all of the contortions of Stalinism and whatnot, that was always something that was stuck to, you know, the Marx, you got a Marx house mm. you know, on Wednesdays or whatever, and you have your Marx reading group, you know, like you could go there and you could get, you know, translations of, of whatever, you know, like, and if you read the old biographies of, of people like who are around Nick Oregas's Trotskyist group, you know, mm. they tell, you know, that he would, you know, just make these really awful translations mm. of like fourth international stuff out of French into English because he taught himself French in, but in the most clunky way possible. So it was basically unreadable, but at the very least he did it. But that's still pretty impressive, right? I, I, that anybody could, you know, get this stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's incredible. You know, I, I've, I, whilst also, did he work on the wharves, Nick Glass? I think so. Was, yeah, he did because he was in, yeah, no, he was, um, Part of like a breakaway sort of branch of the union, branch of the of the of the union in Balmain in the forties mm. that challenged communist dominance and the communists kind of bringing everyone into line during that's, World War Two. So that's that's incredible. So I guess like the first kind of things that I'm thinking about in these kind like in these kind of six weeks after the Trump election. Yeah, yeah. Like I do think, even though I said like it is kind of interesting to work out what the Trump power block will be and yeah. what its policy agenda will be and how that will have an impact or will that not have an impact. Mm. But I think to understand that, you can't just locate it in the nefarious capacities of Trump, but understand that administration yeah. is a product of the deeper historical moment we're in. Yeah. But, well, I guess, but I guess like my first kind of takeaway lessons is, is like to really reaffirm the idea that like a defeat for the left of the status quo 
is not a defeat for emancipatory politics. And no. if we feel if it's been a defeat, like you were talking about Navarra saying we need independent media, it's mm-hmm. it's like that we haven't made ourselves independent and autonomous enough from the left. Yeah. You know, mm. and then the second point is is to like really be fundamentally committed to radical democracy, mm-hmm. right? To constantly be arguing for a world where people have more and more control, not mm. falling into some kind of technic- technocratic, you know, response um, against the threat of like the mob which pit- with pitchforks. Yeah, and I'll add a third thing to that, and I don't want to get too much into the well, identity politics rack us, but I do think that it's important that we try to keep ourselves, keep if any, like I'm not involved in, I'm not in America, I'm not even very involved in Australian social movements, but I just want to say, you know, that the politics of solidarity as a historian is that's what wins in the end, you know, and connecting struggles, like connecting the way that pay Indigenous Australians in, in 1938, as an example, delivered a petition to stop to the German consulate demanding that the Nazis stop their vile acts towards Jews. You know, examples of international solidarity and connections across racial groups and across gender group, across gender and across some um, sexuality. That's what's going to win these battles. You know. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because. I, I, there's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about that mm. that I've seen happening. Like yep. one is this explosion of amateur positive so, positivist sociology. Yep. And I want to talk about that. But also, suddenly there was this debate that was framed as identity politics versus economics. Yep. You know where it was where you had like two camps. Yep. And one camp seemed to be saying like. The Trump victory is proof of the kind of solidity of whiteness. Yep. Those people are fucked. Yep. Um, they're going to be demographically kind of erased anyway. Mm. What we need to do is kind of continue a kind of increasing the power and resonance of an identity politics. Yep. Then a reverse argument that said um, the mobilisation of working-class people who were white for Trump would have been defeated by a populist economics position Mm. and identity politics had split that. Thus, we need to reject Mm. identity politics and have some kind of populist left economic platform. Yeah. And, like, that debate seemed to, like, generate a huge amount of words on either side. Yeah. And, like, to my mind, like, both seem pretty... Yeah. Limited, right? Like, no, I mean, and I don't want to come across as someone who's on the on the latter side of that debate because I'm certainly, I'm certainly not. I mean, I think one of the best things to come out of America since the election was the victory um, against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, that kind of shows what a good, what the, maybe a good way out of this is, is, is you know, connecting up on real local issues of people of people from all backgrounds connecting around to fight on concrete local issues. You know, this seems like something useful. That seems so. We might put a link or something to some stuff. Yeah, totally. It, it, it just it just seems really inspiring like, and interesting stuff. Like, because to my mind, it just seems a, a kind of reality that on one hand, like in a country like Australia or the US, you have hierarchies of identity. Yeah. Um, and those hierarchies of identity are, cr- are crushing on people's experience and yep. also produce struggles. Yep. And simultaneously, those hierarchies of identity are plugged in and also are kind of organised around a dynamic of capital accumulation, which has an antagonistic class relationship in it. Yep. Right? Like, I think like I think that's the basic kind of lack of a better term, intersectional understanding. Yep. Um, and I don't... For yep. me, then it becomes a question of, like, well, how are the different struggles going on across that mm. and how do they resonate or not resonate with each other? Yep. You know, like, but... I guess the thing that this links with, uh, you know, by the kind of amateur positivist sociology, I mean, there was a lot of kind of after the election just kind of like looking at exit polling, then tying it to different demographics. Yeah, yeah. Like as if, yeah, all Latino people think the same. Oh, bloody. And there was a really good article, which you should link to, um, which was the going to that one little town. Do you remember this one? Yeah, um, keep it going. 
in Milwaukee, I think it was maybe, and it was like all of these people who were just talking in ways like people of African American background. In a barbershop? Yeah, the barbershop, yeah. And they're just like talking in ways that, you know, you would not at all imagine to correspond to like, you know, our imagined understanding of how people from those ethnic backgrounds would, would, would be talking about politics. Yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, the, like you're spot on. Like I've read a number of pieces like this. There was also a piece that was similar. It was written before the election in the journal Hard Crackers, okay. um, which I'm really into this journal. I think it's really, really... I've never even heard of it. So well, it, it's, it's Noel Ignatiev and others that were in Race okay. Trader, and sure. they've got this new project called Hard Crackers, where they kind of re- reject kind of formal anti-racism. And it's kind of like something like Harvey Picard would have done with his comics, where it's just stories of people's lives. Yeah. You know, like trying to look in like how people live in their lives, how they experience in class and race. And, yep. you know, w- what does daily life tell us? Mm. But, you know, one, again, was like this, um, you know, interviewing like a dude in a small town, I think from, you know, historically a Polish background who's going to vote for Trump because things were just fucked in the town, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I read another piece yesterday about an uh, uh, African-American woman who used to, like, was like a serious Democrat activist who voted for Trump as just like a fuck you. Yeah. Like, it seems like every time you read the the qualitative work, which is actually Mm. going to people and asking them, people are far more sophisticated and nuanced and reasonable yep. than, than how the establishment and so much of the yep. left thinks about them, right? Yeah, because we're all stuck at the level of the policy wonk or the bloody, you know, the, the person whose job it is to map ideas onto identities and to pull out the Latino vote or pull out the whatever vote, you know? Yeah. And we operate in the same nexus, you know? You think about, oh, you know, well, those people will vote for Hillary or those people will vote because historically they have for various yeah. But all of those are contingent. Capitalism, as we all know, is is not like some totality that's constantly just like a machine grinding away. It's a series of hodgepodge of, of, of contra- conflicts and contradictions. Yeah, and that exhibits in people's minds in all sorts of, of, in all sorts of ways. Well, because there's some stuff that is interesting about it, right? Like there is, at some level, you go, okay, there's a correspondence between Trump votes and, again, listening to Doug Henwood show this morning, like there was a correspondence between people who voted for Trump and like um, people who live in areas where there's declining life expectancy and high use of prescription painkillers, right? That kind of stuff is interesting. Yeah. But the thing that I hate about it is not just that Mm. people are contradictory, it sees people as being fixed. Yes. Right? Like that there are these things called identities and people are just kind of pinned to the point and that there can never be like transformation Yep. Or change, and yep. it was real. The thing that really fucking like you know got my goat yes. was that yes. like so many so-called Marxists were doing the same thing, but for, using class as the analysis, right? Mm. Where they're still they're going, oh look, you know, here's something we can say something about class, and that means these people are this kind of person that think these kind of things and will vote in this kind of way, mm. and like there's like this desperate need by some Marxists to prove that mm. the reactionary populism has no working class support. But the thing that yep. really like fucks me off about this is mm. this this is not what the radical understanding of class is. The yep. radical understanding of class, as I understand it, is mm. that we live in an antagonistic relationship. Mm. Right? It's not that there's just this fixed kind of people, but rather the way that capital works, there's a group of us that have nothing but our labor power to sell. You know, in the broader sense, some of us sell it, some of us don't. And this yep. is an antagonistic relationship with capital. There's conflict that has, it's torn and it's conflicted mm. and it cuts through us and it's torn and conflicted. And it's not that we're a certain kind of person, but just we have a shared experience of antagonism with all the hierarchy within that. And that's in motion and can change. But this kind of amateur positive sociology denies that there's that change. Yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said of the way that that, that sociology and Marxism have intersected in the last 50, 60 years. Like, go back and and read, like, C. Wright Mills and and sociological imagination and just how much, you know, that sort of stuff is now taken for granted completely. Mm in Marxist circles and how it's really easy then for us to just talk about, you know, to talk about class as a totality, as classes like numbers, class as like who's within a particular class or whatever, mm. rather than you class as Marx writes about it, of course, as yeah. relationship, you know. 
and, and then we get lost and there's the no way out. Historical and the sociological view, which I won't get into because you know, then I'll be seen as defending historians. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like, if you don't have that, that, capa- that idea that these are antagonistic relationships and things mm. can change, yeah. then you're lost, right? Like, like what are you in politics for? Like, yeah. why you, like if, if that's the case, then just give up. Like, you know, like you're never going to... And in that, in that case, you can't understand how, you know, a bunch of building workers in Sydney in 1970 would go from, you know, being amongst the most poorly paid workers in Sydney to being amongst the most highly paid and defending, you know, green spaces in the inner city. And they wouldn't have given a shit about that two years ago. Mm. Transformative effect of struggle and the transformative effect of political power and realizing that you can have a say over your life. Yeah, Hard Crackers has this real kind of like grim optimism about that America's moving towards another civil war. And, <laughs> and they, they have this grim optimism because they see the last civil war as an emancipatory struggle. Mm. You know, and one of the things that they say is that when the civil war started, most people in the North supported slavery. Yeah. But by the end, it had been transformed into an anti, you know, like into an anti slavery crusade. And yeah. they're like, that's what revolutions do, you know, and they even talk about like Lincoln himself is transformed by that struggle. Yep. You know, and I think you're right. Like, it, I think this is one of the kind of lessons I think we've constantly got to learn is the transformative powers of struggle. I remember, you know, probably almost 20 years ago, like, being involved in these picket lines in Wollongong and, like, having these debates beforehand about if we would picket or if we wouldn't picket. Mm. And then people who in the meetings had argued that we shouldn't picket, that mm. when the cops are actually there were some of the most bravest and active on the line yeah. because the struggle had changed them, you know, like... Mm. Um, and in the same way that struggle, the tide going out in struggle changes people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. But Trump and Australia, mm-hmm. how's, it, how's it played out here? Mm. Yeah, look, big question. I feel like we should have done this podcast a few weeks ago and a bit more fresh in our minds about the immediate responses... <laughs> But, you know, like it was, there was, you know, some kind of interesting stuff from the right, obviously. People like Judith Sloan jumping on the Trump bandwagon. Bill Shorten quickly jumping a bit on the Trump bandwagon as well, I think. Well, I see that. And he was, he was talking, you know, in One Nation, we're out there cracking the champers out front of Parliament. Representing the deplorables, you know, so there's interesting resonances. I, actually, I think, actually, like, despite the fact that everyone but one nation mm. and maybe that faction of the Liberal Party, mm. like Christensen and Bernardi... If they're even a faction. Well, well, who fucking knows? But you know Christensen is speaking on a platform with Hanson? Yeah, and, like, maybe, like, some, like, far-right people too? Yeah, people from, I think, the Australian Liberty Lobby, which are the kind of Gert Wilders imitators. What's the, um, the Q Society? And the Q Society too. Yeah. Uh, but also, like, did you um, see that that dude who recently was, you know, was a uh, One Nation candidate for a day, Andy Supple? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, you know, he's this guy who was a One Nation candidate for a day, makes really offensive tweets, so offensive that One Nation asked him to stand down. Mm. He either used to be a writer or maybe even a contributing editor to Menzies House, which was like the shared blog of the young liberal right. Okay. You know, uh, James Slipper, who... Is it Slipper, isn't it? Who's like the... Ash- talking about Ashby or Slipper? You're getting... Oh, I'm getting my Ashbys and my Slippers confused. Yeah, you're talking about Ashby, the bloke who was Peter Slipper. Oh, there, there you go. Yeah, so yeah. so Ashby is now like um, Hanson's chief of staff. Is that right? Uh, no, that's right, yeah. And, and there, was a new, there was a newspaper article today that apparently the, the One Nation candidates have to buy their package of materials from his biz- private business <laughs> at an advanced pro- but but I thought my heading down a very similar path to the way that the last one nation thing fell apart but yeah. but, my, but my point is like about how close one nation is to conservatives but um, yeah. you know, that said I think what happened here was all the political forces but one nation which like were opposed to Trump yeah all made Trump friendly moves in terms of policy Mm. Afterwards, so yes, you have Shorten who yeah. rams home again against you know four, five, seven visas yep. and returns to that old style ALP racist labour protectionism. Yeah, you yep. know um, that that's that's really um, a major thing here. Then you have Peter Dutton 
in the Liberal Party yep. attempting to make coded racist attacks, mm. but they weren't that coded, yep. at people in Australia from Lebanese Muslim backgrounds, yep. right? Which are, you know, out of all the populations in Australia that have come through migrate from migration, probably except for the horrific treatment of Indigenous people, maybe yeah. the one group of people that suffers the most consistent vile yeah. racism yeah. is people from Lebanese Muslim backgrounds, yeah. right? Where he basically said that these people shouldn't have migrated here in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. And in an interesting way, then demonising, you know, who, who, would, who had previously been like a liberal kind of um, champion in the, in, the, in, the, in the personage of Malcolm Fraser. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's interesting, you know, how much Fraser is getting dragged through the mud these days by the new crop of liberals, which maybe in a way shows just how to the right they've drifted in that few decades. Yeah, so I think that's like, um, that's fa- like it's, it's horrific. Like in, in, that, in that sense, like how, how has it played out here is the establishment political forces are trying to kind of like retur- both return to their more reactionary roots but also kind of ape some form of yep. aggressive reactionary populism, right? Like yep. that's what they're like doing. There's, there's no middle ground. You're either like with Trump or you're against him. Mm. You either completely adopt like Trumpian language like in this completely stupid way because there's no way that they can in any way mimic him. You know, not even, I don't, I don't even think one nation can, realistically. I don't think that that's... Well, I guess that's the other, the other thing... Out of this. The other thing that's interesting as well is that people in the LNP, so, you know, Campbell Newman yeah. was trumping, boom, boom, um, the idea of a coalition, one nation coalition in the Queensland yeah. Parliament, that they would have one nation enter into... Um, into into a, like a minor government or a, a shit, you know, with them, which is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, but then equally, if you want to go Queensland specific, let's talk about um, just one very specific element of the Adani deal, which was recently struck, which was basically that um, it was a privilege during white Australians in hiring arrangements at the new Adani mine. Did you hear about this? Yeah, keep them going. Basically, what they want, what the, the, as part of getting the agreement to go ahead, Queensland Labor's said that there needs to be a locals first hiring policy before four five seven visas are used. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be a specific preference for locals, and if there's a local to fill the job, they can't get a four five seven. Well, this is like s- totally what the the official labor movement has fallen into, right? I think so. And like, yeah, and then people who are like their kind of progressive defenders, yeah, can only like you know thinking particularly about one notorious. Labor defender who writes for the Guardian, um, you know, like they 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 don't like to talk about those seedier aspects, the racism and whatnot. You know, like yeah, that I, needs to get swept under the carpet. A comrade told me recently, and I'll give no identifying things away, that uh, one union had made a poster attacking four five seven workers yeah. and had pictures of people on it and these were non-white people you yeah. know, uh, on it as, and they were meant to be the evil 457 workers mm-hmm. but the actual photo that was used was mm-hmm. of migrant workers who'd been mobilised to join another union <laughs> <laughs> this is the really <sighs> like isn't, isn't that grotesque you know like that other union is actually doing something that's fucking yeah. that sounds fantastic right Actually, yeah, you know, like that's amazing, but you know, the the enemy depicted is actually you know, workers who are here that that are getting engaged in a real struggle and you know, working at the bottom of the pyramid uh, of the capitalist hierarchy here. Like, fucking hell, and this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, there's a good article I saw about this today about in Britain, um, about the British experience, I think, as well. Yeah, talking about that same stuff about how. It's people like in these Uber struggles, the Uber struggle, um, the the Deliveroo mm. recently. These are largely migrant workers who are the most militant, who are the ones who are pushing often outside of union, often outside of union official structures. Well, because that, that's that's like one. If you think about one of the racist tropes, you know, the racist trope is the companies bring in yep. labour from overseas. A, because it's cheaper, and it's cheaper because people are in a more legally precarious position, and that is totally fucking true. But then the next one is normally a racist or culturalist argument that says, and these people are from cultures that make them more submissive, right? 
Yeah. But if you're, but if you're talking about workers from, say, India, China, or the Philippines, mm. or South Korea, yeah. they're all countries with far more militant working classes than Australia. Yeah, like you couldn't think of a more quiet, quizzient working class than Australia. And we, we've got to include ourselves in that critique. Oh, no. That's definitely. not another. We're, we're, that's a historical experience. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about Humphrey McQueen's writings today and, and how relevant those are, talking about the petty bourgeois consciousness of the Australian working class. No, no, no. Yeah, keep on going. Make that argument. No, oh, I mean, I, I, you know, like, I don't know. It's a bit tangential. But, yeah, I mean, certainly the idea that, you know, that he put forward in, in New Britannia, basically, that, uh, that the consciousness of the Australian working class as it formed in the 19th and early 20th century it was basically petty bourgeois because... Um, they really lacked the experience of proletarianization because of the realities of Australian of Australian history, which were basically that there was always a majority, there were always not enough workers. Like a kind of labour. So there was never a shortage of workers that would force down wages. That the compa- compact with labour was a necessity. You know, so there's a very lot of really historically specific things that happened in Australia that made for a very strong, very white union movement. Yeah. See, I'm not sure what I think about that because I, I wonder how much it it. Is yeah. still too similar to that thing we just critiqued before. Yeah, no, about, no, about people back and then critiqued his own work on that. You know, and Cook. I guess what is probably worth talking about is that and I do agree this in in Humphrey McQueen's work argument. Yeah, that there has been a historical tendency that rather than attacking capital mm. to increase the share of labour. Yeah. There's been a struggle of reducing the supply of labour, so maintaining yeah. the borders. Yeah. So that's not just an accident of history. That's been no. a tactic. No. And that that completely mm. is part of and yeah. determinous with mm. the racialized policing of the border. I think yeah. that's true. And then but, but take I, that I, up I, to the international frame again, mm. how is that getting exported now? You know, like this is, they talk about... A point like the the Tories, the Bre- the Brexiters are talking about a points-based migration system. They're talking about islands off the coast of Britain to be used for like housing people offshore. You know, like these are Australia. You know, um, is like a model for some of these people in terms for some of the um, some of the break for some of the 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 right in Britain and also in Australia in in America. Sorry, you know. Yeah, I, no, I totally agree with that, and that's terrifying and horrific. And and even the Nazis, in, you know, the neo-Nazis and fascist groups in Germany celebrate Australian border policies. Mm. But I think there's a problem with this argument can very quickly be one that kind of naturally hands over large sections of, of the Australian working class to reaction. Yeah, totally. You know, that rather than seeing, like, I want to go back to that point, is that struggle is transformative and that, that, totally. that we're all part of this antagonistic relationship. Yeah. And like a different, and there's another history of people resisting this as well. Yeah, totally. Like I was just doing some research recently about you know um, how the Communist Party was you know, put out a pamphlet back in the 1940s attacking the white Australia policy when it was the official policy of all of the union movement. It was the official policy of everyone, you know. Hmm. So you know the, the 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 far left did fight that, and being a member of a far left organization ensured that people had a more progressive view, I suppose, and ensured that people had generally at least had to, they experienced anti-racist politics. They often met people from other communist parties. They would come across visiting delegations or they'd be sent abroad on delegations to go to various, um, to visit um, fraternal parties, you know. Mm. So people were forced into an internationalism. Yeah, you know, and that's culture that got that that's kind of been lost in the. It's kind of culture that's definitely, I guess, been lost. Yeah, I, I wonder. I think there's probably elements of it still going. You know, I know people who um, have different positions in the union structure mm. who do really interesting stuff in Indonesia. And, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know that the National Union of Workers had like a an, a project where they were like recruiting people in Taiwan. Mm. before the young Taiwanese people came to Australia for jobs here because mm. I guess the other the other kind of thing that's been another story of 2016 has been the, the continual revelations about the exploitation of, of young people, but particularly yeah. young yeah. people who are, here, who are here on student visas or young yeah. migrants, right? Like yeah. it's, it's also happening to people who are Australian citizens um, 
you know, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald about it, but there is also that other story of exploitation. So I think there are those kind of, like, I don't think that stuff's super interesting and, and amazing as well. But I think we should wrap up. I think we need to, we're already probably hitting about 45 minutes on the record. Well, we're about to hit 50 minutes. Oh, I, the, thing, the thing that I did want to kind of talk, like, to, to, to finish that point, like, that um, I really am worried about how kind of some of the natural response of a certain part of like inner city young left mm-hmm. to the resurgent popularity of of Hanson and the fact that mm-hmm. the one nation's going to run 30 something candidates might win a couple of seats yep. is just kind of like anti-bogan snobbery yeah which fits back into that idea that somehow people are just like inherently reactionary and there's yep. no point yeah, nothing good's ever happened in the suburbs. Yeah, so, and then basically yeah. cities like Ipswich and, and Toowoomba <laughs> and Rockhampton and Bundaberg, you know, yeah. they're, they're not even on the map, right? Yeah, it's the same thing. It replicates, I guess, if you want to take some, get into some pop sociology and talk a bit about the urban-rural divide in the American election, you know, how much it was the urban progressive centres that voted Hillary and the, and the rural areas that voted Trump. Mm-hmm. You're going to just have an attitude like that, then how does that not if you have an attitude which is snobbish towards the suburbs, which are basically the countryside in Australia, <laughs> you know, not many people live in the proper country, you know, like that is going to replicate and they're very negative ideas. Yeah, totally. And it's also about like, you know, reading kind of formal political identification and formal political language mm. rather than the kind of substantive struggles that yeah. people are in. Yeah, and what know, actual you, opinions, you know? Like, yeah. it's interesting to think that in all of the surveys, people seem to be less racist over the last 20 years, but they but seem to still vote, from, vote more for racist parties. So like, where's really the, the relationship here? How does this all fit together? Like, well, I guess there's another debate about, you know, like, and we've kind of tried to touch on this, and I found it impossible to write about, about the kind of transformations in racism, right? Yeah, totally, yeah. You, you like, know, like... You formally say, anti-racist, but still, like, racist. <laughs> yeah, to, well, totally. Well, it is, right? I think you could say up until the end of the white Australia policy, you yeah. have formally racist ideology fitting yeah. with formally racist law yeah. with a with a actually racist social experience yeah and now we have formally anti-racist ideology formally anti-racist laws and a different kind with still connections to the past racist racist social experience but we also have anti-racism too which is important there's like this this gus and Hajj article called recalling anti-racism that's like really interesting because he's he's not just talking about how racism has changed and its continuities, but also the struggle against it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of refusal to see the existence of racism as kind of a fait accompli. Yeah, you know, um, it kind of like I don't know no. where to I don't know where to wrap up, but maybe like I I need to reread Christos Solkis's Dead Europe. Mm. Like, cause, it's a really powerful book. It's a really powerful book, right? Like, so, mm. But the thing that I really like about Dead Europe is it talks about old racism, particularly in terms of an anti-Semitic hate crime. Yep. But then yep. it talks about the kind of whirlwind of neoliberal racism. Mm. But then, yep. it, then yep. the thread it links through mm. is multi, like polycultural communism. Mm. Yep. You know, like there's constant references to that links of real solidarity that have been built from workplace to workplace. Yep. of a different kind of project. And even if it's kind of is nostalgic and sees this in the past, yep. like that, that's real, like because it, it just says, well, there's old racism and there's new racism and they're just this thing we're caught in yep. and the, all the shit stuff about contemporary capitalism just feeds that whirlwind. But yep. there is this thread of struggle that makes things yep. different. Yeah, I mean, like Australians protesting in the 40s for Indonesian independence, working with Indonesian activists like no one remembers that that's not even that's not a part of the even the left's kind of narrative of itself you know mm. in a lot of ways you know and a lot of the stuff is really quite easily it's quite easily forgotten the actual real struggle of australians against racism <laughs> which is real and did happen you know there are particular times in which it was popular and times that it wasn't obviously but you know it does do you think do you think we've kind of like you know accept we, we've given up certain elements of our history mm. to like a right narrative. Yeah, oh, I think so. Yeah, totally. Because that's how hegemony functions in a way. Like a conv- an ideology functions as well, you know, to convince us of things that we know to be untrue. <laughs> you know, make us kind of forget 
realities, you know, or to experience realities in these kind of like distorted ways. That's really interesting. There's like this anti-capitalist project in the US that I only know about through Facebook called like Redneck Revolt. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you were talking about that other group before. Yeah, yeah. and they're, they're so interesting in the sense that like that they kind of, you know, they, they go where the left doesn't go. Like they go to gun shows yeah. and they table in gun shows and they, they organize, you know, to carry guns and things like that. Yep. But and they they you know they are part of the the working class and neglected by the left establishment. Mm. But also one of the things they seem to do is like the recovery of history. Yeah, totally. No, and there's a really good book that's just come out recently, probably by someone associated with them about the um what were they called? This is this patriot, the young patriots, young patriots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. They were like. Yeah, and that's a kind of a real legacy that needs to be remembered. You know, there's a lot of good stuff coming out, you know, and the anniversary of Fred Hampton's tragic murder. Yeah, uh, in yeah. 69, or 70, I think it was 69, yeah. I'll embed, I'll embed a video in the page of a Black Panther yeah. speaking at a Young Patriots meeting. Mm. And, and it's amazing. Right, it's just completely amazing. Yeah. That's the politics that beats fascism. That's the politics that beats capitalism, as he says. You know, <laughs> it's the politics of solidarity. You know, I think that's a perfect place to finish on, John. All right, all right. Nice You've been David. What was that? Nice talking to you, David. It was good to talk to you too, John. Yeah. We should catch up more often. So you've been you've been listening to Living the Dream, the podcast, and the Hoo Ha Group. We're recording this in the final days of two thousand and sixteen. Um, all the best for 2017, um, full communism by March. I think, you know, we can be optimistic. February. And the impossible. Well, I think that's the thing too, is like, you know, this is, we've got to, uh, if we're going to think through this, obviously this, we want to oppose both the liberal, the the liberal normal and the, the, um, authoritarian nationalist populism, but it can only be done with like a faith and confidence in struggle. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Confidence, faith, hope. Oh, may, maybe not so Obama-esque. Hope you can believe in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Talk uh, to you soon. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. You know what the trouble is, Brucey? We used to make shit in this country. Build shit. Now we just put our hand in the next guy's pocket. Something gone, mister, in this world I got laid off down at the lumber yard Our love went bad, times got hard Now I work down at the car wash Where all it ever does is rain Don't it feel like you're a Joe, I gotta go. We had it once, we ain't got it anymore. She packed her bags, left me behind. She bought a ticket on the central line. That's as I sleep, I hear that whistle whine. I feel her kiss in the misty rain, and I feel like I'm a rider. On a downbound train Last night I heard your voice You were crying, crying You were so alone You said your love had never died You were waiting for me at home I put on my jacket, I ran through the woods I ran till I thought my chest would explode There in the clearing, beyond the highway In the moonlight our wedding house shone I rushed through the yard, I burst through the front door my head pounding hard up the stairs I climbed 
The room was dark, our bed was empty Then I heard that long whistle whine And I dropped to my knees, hung my head and cried I swing a sledgehammer on a railroad Knocking down them cross ties, working in the rain Don't it feel like you're a rider On a downbound train